Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M., and this is Volume 12, Issue Number 35, which corresponds with the week of August 15, 2022. This week, we're going to talk about coronavirus update number 68, and we're also going to look at work and goal setting at the end. So the basics of the data with coronavirus continue to look good. We are seeing North Carolina and many other states acting in a pre-pandemic way with packed restaurants and concerts, people moving on with their daily lives. This continues to make sense for me because the hospital numbers, death, and disease morbidity numbers currently are uncoupled to disease volume, which is actually high in many places. We are still not seeing any significant COVID disease of MIS type or severity in kids, despite having many cases positive. North Carolina only has about 4% of admitted patients needing a ventilator and 12% needing an ICU bed for COVID. The U.S. strains now with Omicron, as of August 13th data, showed that it's primarily BA.5 at 89%, with about 5% of 0.4 and 4.6. So COVID continues to be a Omicron-based reality, and the volumes remain in line with other waves, not including Delta. BA.4.6 is a new subvariant of BA.4, but doesn't appear to be doing anything specific. And there are no signs of any major increase in morbidity or death related to any of the Omicron variants. So at this point, the fundamentals completely point to a world of COVID mitigation based on personal risk tolerance and previous vaccination and or disease. It no longer makes any sense to me for the entire population to be asked to change the way they live and exist. The messaging I'm going to talk about later at number nine remains a major struggle for me with the media as people continue, including heads of major health organizations, to push measures that don't seem logical anymore. And that when the messaging continues to be unrealistic regarding COVID for society at large, we put people into positions of mistrust. So the reason I make this comment about I don't think it makes a lot of sense is because, one, 95% of the population has now a priori immunity based on vaccination or viral disease survival, making the risk of death for almost every group very, very, very low. And that 95% may be low. It may be closer to 99%. Two, the death rate and hospitalization per infection has plummeted and is no longer coupled at all to infectious regional volume, which remains quite high with BA.5 in many locales. Death and hospitalization really truly the only metric we should care about. Three, morbidity remains tied to personal health risks, age greater than 65, comorbid disease that has inflammation at its core, specifically diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and end-stage renal disease. Four, mental health and the health of the nation's economy are also important and should not be put behind COVID anymore in the pecking order. We need to get this country back on track in many ways. 
Five, boosters remain minimally effective for most of us at preventing symptomatic infection. There is excellent evidence that prior infection and or a two-dose series of a vaccine provides incredible coverage against death and hospitalization as long as you are not in one of these high-risk categories. Six, too many people have put off health care because of COVID fear, increasing disease burdens, and delayed cancer diagnoses. We need to normalize our environment so that people go and get regular health care checks so they catch cancers and things of that nature early and produce a easier beneficial outcome because they're going farther upstream to when the disease starts. The CDC, the week of the 13th, released new guidance. They said, if you are exposed to SARS-2, you are no longer in need of quarantining at home regardless of vaccination status. Caveat, wear a mask for 10 days and get COVID tested on day five. If you test positive for SARS-2, you should still isolate at home for at least five days, followed by five days of masking. If you had moderate or severe illness or are immunocompromised, you should isolate for 10 days. Unvaccinated children and or students who are exposed to SARS-2 no longer need to test unless they are symptomatic. Social distancing is recommended on personal risk basis. The guidelines around masks which will recommend that people wear them indoors and in places where community levels are high, have not changed. Okay, let's go to the quick hits. Number one, intermittent fasting and COVID death risk. To me, this is a really good study. It reinforces everything that I believe in and what the data has said over the pandemic. Restricting your access to food that drives inflammation will have a net positive effect on all-cause survival, including COVID. From the study, Subjects engaging in periodic fasting did so for a prolonged period of time prior to being diagnosed with COVID had decreased risk. The composite outcome occurred in 11% of periodic fasters and 28% of non-fasters. Other predictors of hospitalization mortality were age, Hispanic ethnicity, prior myocardial infarction, or renal failure. With trends for race, smoking, hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease, diabetes, heart failure, and anxiety, but not for alcohol use. In a secondary post hoc analysis, COVID-19 was diagnosed in 14.9% of fasters and 13% of non-fasters, so it's roughly the same. They concluded that routine periodic fasting was associated with lower levels of hospitalization or mortality in patients with COVID-19. Fasting may be a complementary therapy to vaccination that could provide immune support and hyperinflammation control during the pandemic and beyond. This is from Horn et al. 2022. Now, the study was a small one. And from rigor's side, the study wasn't great. But the data and the pathophysiologic mechanisms as to why it would be useful, I think, are really reasonable. And for me, it makes a lot of sense. The science here is multifactorial. One, fasting removes food from the metabolic immunologic system, allowing for random resets and autophagy of poor quality cells, as well as the enhancement of immune active B and T cell lines. These are the lines that are very important in responding to a virus quickly. And the faster you respond to a virus when it enters your body, the less likely it is going to be in you causing inflammation, disease, and long-term risk. Two, fasting reduces global inflammation and its respective excessive inflamed cells for, from the circulation. Three, 
fasting shifts the energy source from carbohydrates predominantly to fatty acids, which are known to bind the SARS-2 receptor binding domains, reducing viral entry. Four, repeated fasting boosts basal levels of galactin-3, which has a downstream effect on infectious risk by directly binding to a wide variety of pathogens, activating the innate immune system, increasing the expression of human genes encoding proteins with antiviral capacities which inhibit viral replication. Five, fasting could be removing, albeit temporarily, trigger foods for inflammation like dairy and gluten in non-celiac sensitive patients or milk protein intolerant patients that could have a net effect on reduced inflammation overall, which then again will have an effect on disease morbidity. For me, I'll say this. I have been time-restricted feeding for four years now. I compress my eating times between roughly 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. most days, and usually one or two days a week, I actually try and fast for 23 to 24 hours. I find that I feel my best with this pattern of food consumption. It is a challenge to get all my needed calories in this way, but so far so good. Each their own. See what your body feels like based on your eating habits and patterns, and then decide how you want to proceed from there. For me, this makes a lot of sense. Number two, how long will we be dealing with repeated infections to SARS-2? An interesting article in The Atlantic goes through some of the theories on this topic from Zhang S. 2022. I fall in the camp that we may see many mutations related to infectiousness, but not morbidity. However, I suspect that that's not going to change much. This thing's already unbelievably infectious. I think we're heading towards a common cold. Time will tell. Three. Helmets and disease risk may be a major reason behind Africa's morbidity numbers compared to the industrialized countries globally. From an article in Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health, quote, suboptimal understandings of concepts related to hygiene by the general public clinicians and researchers is a persistent problem in health and medicine. Although hygiene is necessary to slow or prevent deadly pandemics of infectious disease such as coronavirus disease, hygiene can have unwanted effects. In particular, some aspects of hygiene cause a loss of biodiversity from the human body, characterized by the almost complete removal of intestinal worms and protists. Research spanning more than half a century documents that this loss of biodiversity results in increased propensity for autoimmune disease, allergic disorders, probably neuropsychiatric problems as well, and adverse reactions to infectious agents. The differences in immune function between communities with and communities without helminths or worms have become so pronounced that reduced lethality of severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, in low-income countries compared to high-income countries was predicted early in the COVID-19 pandemic. This prediction, based on the maladaptive immune responses observed in many cases of COVID-19 in high-income countries, is now supported by emerging data from low-income countries. Herein, hygiene is subdivided into components involving personal choice versus components instituted by community-wide systems such as sewage treatment facilities and water treatment plants. Quote, Further goes on to state, emerging evidence indicates that much of the morbidity mortality associated with SARS-CoV-2 is in fact due to an overly aggressive immune response and ensuing cytokine storm that may be partly autoimmune in nature. In general, in the field of medicine, the presence of helminths is thought to produce an attenuated immune response to secretion of immunoregulatory molecules, creation of regulatory networks, and changes in mucosal surface permeability. However, 
Given that vertebrate immune function evolved in the presence of symbiotic helminths, the field of medicine needs to change in perspective and may be greatly benefited by considering the immune response in the presence of helminths to be normal and function in the absence of helminths is to be a hyper-responsive person. With this view in mind, it seems intuitive that biota alteration may be in at part, at least, responsible for the part of the morbidity and mortality story of COVID-19 in high-income countries. Parker et al. 2021. Dr. Parker and I sat down in 2021 to discuss this topic in podcast number seven, if you're interested in going a little deeper, with the macrobiome and human health. It is very clear to me that the loss of biodiversity is a major problem in humans, whether it is in the bacterial microbiome or with parasites or with viruses, as well in the intestinal virome, microbiome, and macrobiome. These issues are not going away. Humans are heading towards a worsened health state as we continue to take lifestyle choices that are not in line with our genetics and our symbiotic relationships. We are truly becoming polar bears trying to live in the desert. (laughs) Number four, in an excellent piece in Wall Street Journal, we see reams of stats noting major declines in our collective health metrics following COVID disease. Heart disease and stroke jumped 6%. This is not surprising as the SARS-2 virus attacks with uh, inflammation as its core. This will negatively affect individuals that are already struggling with vascular inflammation. There was also a massive increase in antibiotic-resistant bacteria caused by sheer volume of sick humans requiring antibiotic therapies in hospitals for prolonged periods of time. Many of these antibiotics were often inappropriately prescribed to help COVID patients out that were not suffering from bacterial disease. Couple this again to the reality that many immunologically unhealthy individuals will remain sick for longer, increasing the risk of antibiotic exposure. Lifestyle issues related to stress and depression also went up a lot, including overuse of alcohol and drugs, firearm deaths, sexually transmitted diseases, and more. And finally, health-based prevention, testing, and vaccinations decreased. Cancer screenings and identification of early-onset cancer waned, leading to later diagnosis and worse disease burdens. This comes from Abbott B. 2022. Number five, SARS-2 attacks the human in the respiratory tract via the ACE2 receptor, which happens to be found in high number in the olfactory epithelium and sustentacular cells. The SARS-2 viral infections cause these smelling cells to be sloughed off, leaving the tissue to look like an inflammatory wasteland. There are two scenarios that could occur depending on the pre-infectious inflammatory baseline of the infected individuals, as well as the initial virus load. Healthy individuals with or without a high viral load would likely have a recovery that is fast due to the basal cells regenerating the same cells as were present pre-illness. But this recovery can be impaired by several factors. An individual's characteristics, including age and being overweight, that will cause people to be more susceptible. The olfactory epithelium integrity declines with age and overweight status often will increase basal inflammation in those local tissues, which could also impair regeneration. Infection by SARS-CoV-2 of the olfactory epithelium already in an inflammatory state may facilitate the virus infection efficiency as its receptor ACE2 is overexpressed during inflammation in these areas. Initial virus load. 
The olfactory sensory neurons seem to be infected only with higher viral loads. If this infection reaches a certain threshold, it could begin to affect immature olfactory sensory neurons, which will impact their generation of olfactory epithelium. So that's to say, basically, the higher viral loads are the ones that are getting into these cells and causing the damage. So having less exposure to the virus for lower periods of time with a better immune system based on healthy lifestyle choices will likely mitigate some of this risk. Part of the olfactory epithelium can be replaced by respiratory epithelium, as usually observed in post-viral olfactory disorders. This could recover, uh, diminish the recovery from anosmia because you're actually getting the wrong tissue type brought back into these patients that had the damage occur in the first place. So that would be a problem. This comes to us from Moynier et al., M-E-U-N-I-E-R, 2021. Number six, menstrual changes with COVID were noted reality in many women. From science advances, the authors state, we found that increased breakthrough bleeding was significantly associated with age, systemic vaccine side effects, history of pre-pregnancy or birth, and ethnicity. Immune activity and hormonal function are intimately tied together in women. The spike protein of SARS-2 virus is very immune activating, making it highly likely that natural disease and the vaccination will have short-term negative effect on menstrual activity and female hormone activity in general. Being transient makes it highly unlikely that this will be problematic long-term. However, I still have firm beliefs that people that abuse the metabolic system are at higher risk for these issues at baseline and that the viral illness could push them over the edge. I think of polycystic ovary syndrome and testicular volumes here. These issues are highly associated with obesity and highly processed Americanized diets. SARS-CoV-2 may be pushing these problems to a worse place. Number seven, prolonged loss of smell is a risk factor for cognitive decline in post-COVID patients. This is likely related to the fact that the virus has attacked the brain in a global way. We know that many of the patients have lost brain cell activity and support cells of the nasal epithelium. It may be more global attack on the brain. Time will tell as more research will look at this. Folks suffering from cognitive decline should read the paper in the journal Aging by Dr. Dale Bredesen. Number eight, long COVID or post-acute COVID syndrome is finally getting more granular based on the research. From Dr. Kana, C-A-N-A-S, and colleagues, we see, quote, two to eight symptom profiles clusters were identified with three recurring clusters. A cardiopulmonary syndrome was the most prominent observation with manifestations of exertional intolerance and dyspnea, shortness of breath, fatigue, autonomic dysfunction, increased heart rate, palpations, lung radiological abnormalities, including fibrosis and chest pain. The second common presentation consisted of persistent general immune activation and pro-inflammatory state comprising multi-organ mild sequelae, gastrointestinal symptoms, dermatologic symptoms, and or fever. A third syndrome was reported with neurologic or neuropsychiatric symptoms, brain fog or dizziness, poor memory or cognition, and other mental health issues, including mood disorders. Headache, central sensitization, paresthesia, autonomic dysfunction, fibromyalgia, and chronic pain, or myalgias, muscle aches. 
Unsupervised clustering methods identify two to six different post-COVID phenotypes mapping to one of these described above, end quote. This information remains very useful for the future for clustering these patterns into order to study them, to start to understand really the genetic, epigenetic, and upstream causative patterns that may be leading to better treatments for these folks suffering from long COVID. All right, here's number nine, the one I was talking about earlier. This is an example of everything going wrong in modern media messaging. An article written for the lay public basically stating without discussing who is at risk, that we should all avoid these five places from now on with COVID subvariant Omicron BA.5 at play. The author uses Dr. Ohm, Dr. J. Wes Ohm, U-L-M, a Harvard and MIT-trained MD-PhD with a background in bioinformatics, gene therapy, genetics, drug discovery, consulting, and education to tell us that he is the arbiter of truth. They write, quote, Although BA.5 is spreading like wildfire across the United States, there are ways to try and prevent catching the virus, and Dr. Ohm shares five places to avoid and why. Read on. And to ensure your health and the health of others. Here are the five avoiding decisions that were counseled to that we are counseled to make now. These are again according to Dr. Ohm in this paper. Number one, large indoor gatherings especially if air filtration, ventilation, and UV disinfection are unavailable. Two, smaller indoor gatherings with close contact or inability to socially distance. Three, public transportation. Four, indoor gyms or health clubs with poor ventilation. Five, outdoor events in close quarters, especially with close proximity to loud yelling or hollering voices. So this is coming for us, new gen, N-E-W-G-E-N-H, 2022. All right, so let me get this straight. You can't make this stuff up. A virus that is highly infectious, unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime, and finally not causing significant deaths nationally based on a priori SARS-2 exposure and vaccination status, is now necessitating these draconian choices without the context of each person's personal health risk. Wow. I'm amazed that they, they one, wrote this article, and two, they used a high-prominent, you know, Harvard-MIT guy to, as the basis of it, but... This virus is likely to be here with us forever, which in turn means that the authors are planning to long-term strike against these five behaviors to save our culture. In a vacuum where the economy, personal happiness, and personal health risk are not accounted for, then maybe these are reasonable. But we don't live in that world. We have a real world. Current hospitalization rates due to COVID remain so low, despite very high circulating volumes, death and hospitalization drive the way society exists with a novel virus, not circulating viral levels in ivory tower researchers. The ivory tower researchers' opinions are what this article is basically giving us. The long-term consequence of these five choices on a national scale, if repeated based on every new COVID wave, would be tragic. One, no more family gatherings indoors. Unacceptable. Two, no more concerts or sporting events where you are not six feet away from your neighbor who is not allowed to scream. Three, forget the gym. If you cannot work out outside and be socially distanced, just stop exercising. And that's really good for your health. Four, bankrupt companies by the boatload who used to provide gym services, concerts, events, uh, drove a bus, plane, train, or had anything to do as a support system for those same things. Oh, and by the way, anyone working for those companies just lost their job. That's useful. 
How are these authors mitigating these downstream problems of poverty, mental health struggles, less exercise, fitness, more disease based on not exercising, and just decreased social happiness? Where is the common sense? To me, this is the problem right now with the modern media. We are absolutely in a situation where people are saying things and getting printed that are completely against the way the American culture should be and how we should live. What is absolutely lost on many Americans remains the true reality that the current viruses and pathogens of the future are here. They always will be. We've lived with viruses since our dawn of time. We'll continue to live them forever. The absolute best way to avoid the nightmare of death and morbidity is to take care of your immune self, as has been discussed many times to date. It is not to do the things as Dr. Ohm or Heather Nugent would like us to believe. You know, taking a global perspective, discussing one through five up above as mitigation measures for the at-risk population, while simultaneously discussing global lifestyle decisions that could help us all improve our resilience to infectious disease, that could be useful. So if you're in a really high-risk group, maybe you don't want to go to the gym or concerts or those things without masking. Maybe you want to find ways to mitigate your risk a little more, but for the vast majority of society, no. However, unfortunately, this is the kind of messaging we get. So buyer beware, as we will continue to see guidance that does not take everyone into account. I find that these types of articles are very disturbing and for me, very damaging for the collective health of the whole population, especially when they come from a person who's supposed to represent the highest levels of our educational system. Okay, section two, work and goal setting at younger ages. Children who work towards a goal will have better self-esteem than those that passively exist in the modern world of screens and sports only. Sports are important for exercise and team building understandings. However, they are not a substitute for real work and goal setting around the work. Getting dirty in work where there is struggle is a key to building awareness for life's choices. And we get that through chores and realities. At young ages, children should be expected to be a part of family unit by cleaning. Not only their own room, but the main living space as well. They should be expected to clear the table after dinner and then progress to cleaning the dishes when old enough. The chores should also be outside, including pulling weeds, sweeping, and other chores that parents do. These are life lessons in completing tasks and being part of a family unit and having responsibility. I also would encourage you to take them on charity-based visits to give them a goal of serving others. Whether this is a soup kitchen, church, or other, doesn't matter. The giving, working, and doing are enough. These are unbelievably powerful tools for teaching responsibility to others as a species. Kids do not learn this intrinsically, as they are inherently selfish, and that is okay and normal. It's our job to teach the other. As they progress on to older ages, like age 13, they should be expected to try and earn their own money through work, mow lawns, shoveling, snow, raking, babysitting, cleaning, anything that they could do at that age. It will offer a girl and a boy so much in the development of self-esteem and work ethic. Help them set reasonable goals based on age. When they earn their own money, they spend their own money learning the value of money and then what money really means in general over a lifetime. This is your invaluable gifts of knowledge that prevents issues later on with money and self-indulgent behavior. Gotta stay involved in these kids' lives. Section three is the recipe of the week. Asian coleslaw from Dr. Weil's website. Again, you can get that at salisburypediatrics.com uh, or you can go uh, 
to the actual newsletter, sign up at www.salisburypediatrics.com, click the newsletter link, and then you'll get this every Monday. But these are under the health and wellness tab. Have a great day. And remember, hug those kids. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for all advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter audio cast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.